All That She Carried by Taya Miles is a National Book Award winning book about a plain cotton sack handed down from an enslaved woman to the daughter stolen from her at the age of nine. It is a deep dive into a historical event that is almost too horrifying to face. And yet, Miles uncovers shattering truths about American history. Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and joining me today is Callie Pollock, Dean of Students in Social Science at University of Chicago and host of the podcast Unsung History. Kelly and I examine why a book about the simplest of household items affected us so deeply, why it is ultimately a story of hope, and why all that she carried is the best book ever. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Kelly, will you tell my listeners, first of all, about your podcast? Because I feel like everyone is going to have a little fainting spell when they hear what you do in your work. (laughs) Because it's really cool. Uh, thank you. So uh, my podcast is Unsung History. This is actually the the second podcast that I've done. I used to do a political one and got a little burnt out on that. Uh, and so Unsung History is not quite a year old at this point. And uh, every week I dive into a story that is uh, not untold, not unknown, but is just not all that familiar to a lot of people. Uh, it, it's all so far been American history. I'm going to do a little detour into Britain in the fall, but uh, right now all American history. And I really like to focus on sort of the, uh, and <laughs> we'll get into this why I chose this book, but, uh, you know, into the stories that uh, are are unknown for a reason, like that they've been hidden, suppressed, there isn't a written archive, those are the kinds of things. Uh, and I am not a historian, I don't claim to be a historian, I like to think of myself as a history communicator. And so every week I have an expert on who knows much more than I do, and I can just sort of pick their brain about everything that uh, that I'm thinking about this person or this event in history. How do you decide on topics? Are they things that you are interested in, or do people come to you and say, you know, nobody knows about X, Y, Z? <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it's a mix of of both, and I. Uh, when I initially started the podcast, I had ideas for the first two episodes. And so the very first episode I did was about knitting during World War One. So back home during World War One, back in America, uh, mostly women, but women, little kids, old men who couldn't go to war were just knitting constantly. And they were sending those knitted goods to the soldiers who were in Europe in the trenches. And so they were knitting socks and sweaters and all sorts of stuff. And I'm a knitter. I knit daily. And so that was just a super fascinating story to me that I wanted to cover. I found a woman who'd written a book on it, who was willing to come on and and that sort of launched the podcast and then the second episode I did was about a shooting at Jackson State University uh, that happened just nine days after the Kent State shooting in 1970. My parents were at Kent State during the shooting. I had interviewed them, done like an oral history of their experiences. And in that, they had mentioned this Jackson State shooting that I had never heard anything about. Uh, and so I wanted to sort of dig into like, why does everyone know about Kent State and nobody knows about Jackson State? 
So again, found a historian who'd written a book. She was willing to come on. And, and that was sort of the, the start was I wanted these things that were just like a little bit under the surface. Uh, and from there, uh, you know, I got really involved in history Twitter, which is <laughs> there are historians all over Twitter talking constantly. And sometimes I find the the people first that I want to talk to and see like, what's their book about and, and you know, do a, an episode around that. Sometimes I have themes in mind. So last November, I did a month of Native American history because it was Native American month. Uh, I've done women's, lots of women's history. Uh, I did Black History for Black History Month. Uh, in May, I've got an Asian American and Pacific Islander theme. And so I just try to look for stories sort of in those themes. Uh, and then I get a lot of pitches. Uh, <laughs> anyone who podcasts probably gets a lot of pitches. And so sometimes I get pitches from publishers where the book is just fascinating. And I think, yes, I absolutely have to build an episode around this. Your episodes are long and there's a tremendous amount of rich detail. Is Are you doing all that research work yourself? Yes. <laughs> it is a uh, one-woman show. I have one person helping me. My mom does the transcripts for the shows afterward. But uh, yeah, I, 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 it's, so it's a combination. Each episode starts with a sort of short intro short i say short they keep getting longer so five or ten minute intro and then the interview uh with the expert and uh, i do write those intros i am a slow writer i do not <laughs> i enjoy writing i find it very difficult so uh th those do take some time uh to do but you know mo most of the preparation is reading whatever the main text is whatever the main book is that week is your overwriting goal to get to why this is unknown? I want to make sure that the people just sort of have a basic understanding of, of things, of people. Uh, I, I want to amplify the work of historians. Uh, so that is important to me, not just amplifying, but understanding the work of historians. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's another reason that, that this particular book is so uh, intriguing to me. Um, but yeah, I like it. Sometimes it's very obvious why it's a history we don't know. You know, it, it's something that just there wasn't good records or the people who were the main subjects didn't write or, you know, the, there can be lots of good reasons sometimes that these things are fairly unknown. Sometimes it's it's a little deeper and more complex. So in the case of the Jackson State shooting, uh, there's a lot around racism, police violence, you know, thing, things that are sort of reasons that that did not get the attention. The people who died were black, not white, like they were at Kent State. And so, you know, there's a lot of, of that that goes into that. Uh, sometimes it's really sad stories about why things aren't known. Uh, so I, I did an episode. Uh, there was a, a vice president, uh, the ninth vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, uh, who had a black wife, or at least called his wife. She was common law wife. Uh, and the, the story of why we don't know her story better, uh, she actually was literate. She wrote, she wrote lots of letters. Her daughters were literate. They wrote. Um, but it turns out that probably all of that correspondence was burned by <sighs> Richard Mentor Johnson's brothers. Uh, and so sometimes it's just this really sort of deep, depressing reason uh, that we don't know these stories better. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, 
a part of it that that I like to get into when it makes sense in the story. When you're not preparing for one of these very um, well-researched and in-depth podcasts, what do you read in your free time? <laughs> I read voraciously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I read, uh, you know, I, I work full-time, I have kids, so I don't perhaps read as much as I would otherwise, but uh, I, I probably read around 100 books a year. Uh, and I read... Uh, so I read history to to prepare for the podcast episodes, uh, and that's the majority of my nonfiction reading. I sometimes read other nonfiction, especially in politics, um, but mostly I read uh, mystery novels and especially uh, like the cozy Regency British romance mystery novels. <laughs> that's sort of my my go to. I have read a lot in that genre or around that genre. Uh, so, so that's primarily what I read sort of each night before I go to bed. Were you always a reader since you were a kid? Yes. I've always been a huge reader. I, you know, I was the kind of kid that my parents would yell at for reading a book, walking down the hallway, <laughs> had to tell me to put the book down at the dinner table. Like I always was a reader. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, this is showing my age a little bit, but uh, it's when Pizza Hut had the Book It program and you could earn pizzas by reading. And so we were tracking. I remember in fifth grade, my teacher wanted us to track how much we were reading. And I read in fifth grade, so that nine months of fifth grade, I read 210 books and the next closest kid read 105. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, I've always been a reader. And both of my kids now are huge, huge readers, constantly reading. Do they listen to you when you give recommendations or do they insist on doing their own thing? Yeah, I mean, both of my kids are huge uh, comic book readers and I don't really read comic books at all. So they take after my husband uh, in that way. But my my younger son especially loves, he's seven, and he loves history and biography and and mystery novels, and, you know, and graphic novels and sci-fi stuff that I don't read, you know, so yeah. he has his own, but he also, we, we share some, uh, some things. This episode is sponsored by Lover's Moon by Mark Leslie and Julie Strauss. Hello, Julie Strauss, host of Best Book Ever and Contemporary Romance Author. Hello, Mark Leslie, frequent guest of the show and horror author. Julie, what do you know about werewolves? Absolutely nothing, Mark. I'm scared of everything. What do you know about romance novels? Well, my mom read a ton of romance when I was a kid, and Fabio was always on the cover, so Fabio must be in every romance novel, right? That's exactly right, yes. Mark, do you know what we should do? I do, yeah. Let's say it at the same time, okay? Okay. One, two, three, never speak again. Write a book together. Uh, Yes, that, what you said. We should write a book together. I was thinking we could each write about our favorite things. Yeah, bloody fangs. And making out. Occult shops. Having sex in a bubble bath. Ancient feuds. A marriage proposal in Central Park. A book made of human skin. And friendly honeybees. We've really got something here. You know, I don't see how it could fail. Lover's Moon by Mark Leslie and Julie Strauss is now available everywhere you buy books. Wait, Mark, what was that thing you said earlier? Don't worry about it.
Do you remember how you found this book that we're talking about today, All That She Carried? Uh, so I imagine that I found it on Twitter, which is where I find most of my recommendations for history books. Uh, you know, that that is kind of the the world of history Twitter that I'm in is very much people who are working on women's history, uh, black history, history of slavery. You know, this is the kind of stuff that I'm especially drawn to. And so I'm certain that I saw people talking about it there. And that's where I, I first sort of discovered it. Will you tell my listeners what this is about? Yeah, so uh, the the sort of simple explanation is that they're <laughs> simple <laughs> in sort of quotation marks. Yeah, there uh, there is an an artifact essentially this uh, cotton sack that is embroidered that was uh, just discovered by a woman. I think it was like an estate sale or something, and she found it and she thought this seems important. Somebody should look at this. Brought it to uh, and historical center. And they said, yeah, this is super important. Uh, and and that's sort of the all it is to start is just this, this sack that's embroidered. And uh, eventually it gets to the Smithsonian and, and there's research done around it. Uh, and so Ty Miles, who's a historian, she uh, teaches at Harvard. She's written lots of books. She's in, even written one novel that's been published. Uh, she decided to to dive into this and to see what we can learn about the sack, what we can learn from the sack. Uh, and I remember thinking, I was really intrigued by it, but I remember thinking before I read this book, like, how can there possibly be 300 pages or whatever to write about this cotton sack? Like, how is that possible? Uh, but she really uses it as a diving off point. So she's looking specifically into things like, who was the woman who embroidered it? Who were the women who owned it? Um, but then using it to sort of dive into uh, more stories about, uh, you know, what what can we learn about slavery? What can we learn about the South? What can we learn about 1850s, about cotton production, about all sorts of things uh, that go into this sack? So the sack itself uh, was originally owned by a woman named Rose, or at least she's the, the first person we know of who owned the sack. And uh, Rose was enslaved in South Carolina in the 1850s. Rose gives the sack to her daughter, Ashley, when Ashley is sold and they are separated uh, when Ashley is nine. She puts some things in the sack uh, and Ashley takes the sack, and that's sort of all we know until the 1920s when uh, Ruth, who is the person who embroiders it, embroiders that she has the sack, uh, what was in it, what happened. Uh, and we can sort of go through what the embroidery says, but uh, and then says, this came from Ashley. Ashley is my grandmother. Uh, and and that's sort of the entirety of the story. I think it's you know thirty words or something in the entire written record that we have, uh, and that is then the basis of this story. For my listeners, I'll I'll go ahead and read what is yeah. embroidered on it. It says, "My great grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine. Nine. Let's all pay attention to that. Yeah. <laughs> when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina, it held a tattered dress." three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair, told her it be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother. And then it's signed by Ruth Middleton, 1921. So 
before we get into the book, what hit you right off the bat of that embroidery? Yeah, it's... So I should know the first time I read this book, I listened to it as an audiobook. Oh. Uh, so I didn't actually see the sack. I wasn't looking at a picture of the sack, which you can see in the printed book. Uh, so to me, it really felt like poetry that, mm. that this was just sort of this, uh, this beautiful, loving poem and the, the very specific words it be filled with my love always. And the way that is constructed sort of really, really struck me. Uh, and then, you know, in the book, although I hadn't seen the picture, Taya Miles sort of describes the the look of it and the color changes that happen in the embroidery. Uh, and so I could sort of picture it in my mind, but then I, you know, eventually got a paper copy of the book and was able to to see it. That's the thing that sort of stood out to me the most though, was the the use of language, which is really, really key in this book. Uh, but the use of language is the poetic uh, way of expressing this. Uh, and then, of course, you know, just the, I'm a mom of a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, so it's very hard not to, to sort of deeply feel this separation from a child who is nine. I couldn't help but really fixate on each of the items. Mm -hmm. You know, the tattered dress, why that dress? three handfuls of pecans she goes into an entire chapter about the history of mm -hmm. pecans and then the braid of rose's hair that's the one that stopped me in my tracks over yeah. and over throughout this book there's something about that braid that just it's so intensely personal and permanent yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's such a, a rare type of object to have this, this sack, you know, the, the fact that it was embroidered meant that somebody kept it, somebody noticed it. Um, but, you know, and, and Taya Mile talks about this a lot in the book, but that, you know, Rose was someone's property. And so having property herself and being able to pass it down is is just sort of this really remarkable achievement, you know, that that they can have this sort of heirloom, uh, you know, and of course it eventually left the family when uh, I believe when Ruth's daughter died, uh, but you know that this this is just something that that doesn't exist that much, and so you know it, it, it's different if if I as a white woman who can trace back my ancestry for you know. 14 generations or whatever, like if I have an heirloom, that's important and it's meaningful, but it's not as sort of deep. And uh, for in this story to have something that is physical, to have something that has been touched by your ancestors that you know has been touched by your ancestors is just so much more meaningful. And I should point out, Taya Miles does that with each of the items, with the sack <laughs> itself where it was manufactured, where it most likely came from, with what the pecans meant, with what the dress probably meant. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think for me, that is one of the things about this book. I read lots of history and I read lots of well-written history, but I don't think I have ever read any book in history or any other genre as beautifully written as this book. There is just something about 
her use of language in this book, her way of, and and I'm going to use weaving deliberately because we are talking about textiles, but her use of weaving a story together and sort of pulling a thread from here and connecting Mm -hmm. it to over here. It is just remarkable. Like I I, want to now go read everything that Ty Miles has ever written because it is just so incredibly beautiful. Yeah, I was thinking that as I was reading it, knowing in advance that you were a knitter, that the the fiber arts aspect of it must have really meant something to you. Yeah, it really did. And she comes back in, in sometimes very subtle ways. She comes back to this metaphor of textiles several times. Uh, and so that's a thing that I had heard before from historians, especially who work on uh, like slave histories, that that there is a a type of uh, reading. So there's a historian called Marissa Fuentes who talks about this uh, called reading against the grain. And so uh, the grain, I I also sew. And so in, in fabric, you know, the, the grain is, uh, you know, there, there, you can think of like a a cross check pattern, right? Like there's, there's sort of vertical and horizontal lines. Mm -hmm. And if you're reading against the grain, you're sort of reading it diagonally. Uh, And so she talks in this book about sort of reading in the spaces in between. And so sometimes that's what historians have to do in the archives, right? Is that, you know, she's looking she doesn't have records that she can go to for rows. And so she goes, okay, can we find records that people who maybe were enslaving rows were keeping and, and what can we learn from that? And so that is that concept of reading against the grain is like finding everything around, figuring out where the silences are, figuring out what you can learn from those silences, from the spaces in between. Uh, she says in here, she asked a sewer, like, is there a word for the spaces between stitches? And they said, no. <laughs> she said, okay, but that's what I'm doing. It's like, I'm trying to, to read the spaces between the stitches. And so every time she came back to this, uh, this idea of, of textiles, of fabric, it just, you know, it would draw me in again. And, and it was just really, yeah, really meaningful to me. Uh, and there's something about, uh, any sort of fabric art like this, I think that using using your hands, something with you know that's tactile, it just it it means something different. And you know, for me, this is sort of trying to get back to some imagined past, right? Because I spent all day, every day, on a computer looking at like bits of light that are going across my screen that, you know, like there's nothing real. I'm not doing anything, not building anything in the world. Uh, I'm speaking facetiously here, but you know, that that's what it feels like sometimes. And when I knit, I can see the progress. I can feel the progress. I'm making something. And so of course for, uh, for Rose and Ashley and Ruth in the types of work that they did, it was much more tactile, all of the time, um, but they weren't building something for themselves. You know, they were working for someone else. Uh, and so this idea that that these things, you know, this this fabric, this cloth, and then when Ruth is stitching and she is making something, she is putting herself and her ancestors into the historical record by creating, by making, by sewing. I, it just, yeah, it, it sort of... Uh, I think I felt it differently as a fabric artist than I might have otherwise. 
It was on display at the plantation as well, right? Is yeah, right? Middleton Place, yeah. Um, and when it was on display, it moved people so much that the docents had to keep tissues near it. Why do you think, I mean, there are a lot of things on display and likely a lot of them indicate probably a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this sack affects people so deeply? So I think the idea that so we don't know who created the sack it was probably made in a factory but the idea that ruth created onto it i think is something that is so rare in slavery archives so sometimes the the physical objects that you see are you know things like shackles or you know sort of really horrifying things but they don't denote ownership right they denote like that you are an object that that someone else was enslaving and abusing these people this denotes you know that that there is agency here like i I think that that is one of the things uh that is often missing in these kinds of just because it it like doesn't exist it hasn't come down through the past um but you don't see agency in the same way uh for a lot of enslaved people anywhere in the archives and you might find writings so there are are people especially who uh, you know either escaped slavery or after the civil war were able to write their memoirs and and Tyle Miles talks a lot about those um, but you probably don't often see the physical object of that memoir, you know, so you can find words, you can you can get at it that way. But finding a physical object that shows agency, I think, is so much more rare. And I think that's part of why it's so moving to people when they see this physical object. Uh, I think, too, I just the words are so, I mean... <laughs> we were both emotionally reacting, just trying to talk about the words. You know, I, I think that that is is also part of what really moves people. Did you learn anything new as you read this? Anything that maybe you didn't know about enslavement or the time period or anything like that? Yeah, no, I, I learned a, a ton. I think, I mean, I had never before considered uh, what enslaved people were. Uh, you know, I, I think I could have sort of pictured it in my mind, but hadn't thought about the fact that there was an entire industry devoted to making cloth that wasn't as good <laughs> uh, so that that is what enslaved people could wear to distinguish them from other people. And the idea of that it it just sort of stopped me in my tracks as i as i was reading it and thinking about like obviously i know you know sort of uh intellectually that that slavery is is this institution and that that this uh you know that the the south is built around this and that there is so much that goes into this but just those things about like what people wore and and what that meant that they wore that. Uh, I think I had also just never truly thought about the extreme hunger that enslaved people experienced. Uh, Again, this is the kind of thing that like intellectually, of course, I would have 
known that they, they didn't have as much access to to food and certainly good, nutritious, mm-hmm. yummy food. But the idea of the extreme hunger that uh, that is outlined in this book and and what it means and the the sort of things that it would drive people to to do uh, that was uh, I, I think I, I certainly learned, but also was just sort of shocked by in it in a way that I guess shouldn't have been shocking, but but yeah, it was. So I think for me that was a lot of. I certainly learned things, but I think it was also just a, it's so uh, sort of immediate and, and in your face and the way that uh, that she writes, it, it isn't a dry academic kind of style. It is very emotional. And so it, it I think a lot of it, in addition to what I sort of learned per se, was, was just sort of feeling it being able to to sort of empathize in a way that I hadn't been able to before. I love that you say that about her language because the th- that was the thing that struck me immediately. I think from the first page is that one of the great crimes of my education is that almost everything I know about enslaved people comes from white storytellers. Mm-hmm. And what a crime it is that Black folks are not, Black academics and historians are not the ones telling these stories because Mm -hmm. her language is different in this book. You know, she, she, at one point, she refers to an auction block as the crime scene. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually shut the book and went, God damn, (laughs) you know, like, and, and she doesn't back off that. She doesn't say it facetiously. She calls it a crime scene. She she says enslavers, you know, the, the, the plantation owners, she calls them enslavers. Yeah, I mean, I think even white historians now, uh, for the most part, are, are better and more careful about <laughs> the language and, and making it very clear that, that yes, it was absolutely about violence and control. Um, but yes, I think there there is something deeply important about reading black writers, especially black women, when you are reading about enslavement. That mm-hmm. that this is something that, uh, it, you know, and I think Taya Miles does such an amazing job, sort of thinking through that that legacy, but that that is is something that is still a sort of living present thing for a lot of black women in this country. And so, yeah, I think absolutely it it makes a difference to hear those voices. You know, she's she talks about her own family some too and her own family's experience with slavery and you know that that is a real thing. So there's a graphic novel called Wake: The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts. Mm. It's by Rebecca Hall. Uh, and I, I've interviewed her as well. Uh, and it, there's there's very similar types of things going on in that book where she's trying to read against the grain. She's trying to find the absences. Uh, but she too is able to talk about her own family and her own family's experience of enslavement. Uh, and, and she... And because of sort of uh, quirks of of length of generation, she's the granddaughter 
of slaves, which is sort of shocking wow. to still have in, in this uh, day and age. And so I, I think that that is, yeah, just means a lot uh, to, to have those voices. You get something different from it. You know, I don't think that means that we should ignore all white writers who are, are writing about this history. I think that there's so much work to do that, that you know, it, it, it takes a lot of people to do it. But I do think that it is important to to front and center those Black voices in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I have missed in this book that you want to talk to me about or that you want to tell listeners about that they should be paying attention to? So I think one thing that may not be obvious in, in what we've said is that at heart, this is a book about hope, about radical hope. Uh, and, and it doesn't feel that way when you're thinking like you're talking about somebody being ripped away from her nine-year-old and, you know, this terrible, tragic time. But but that is what this is essentially about. And that is how she frames it from the very beginning of this book. It's about love. It's about hope. It is about Rose saying I believe that my line will continue. I may never know what happens. And indeed, she never sees her daughter again. But she finds a way to give her daughter something. And this tiny little thing that she can do gives her daughter something, believes that this line will continue. Uh, And I think for me, that is a large part of why I am drawn to history, why I read history, is this idea that that things aren't the end. So I know everything feels really bleak right now, <laughs> uh, especially if you have sort of liberal leanings in this country. You know, th- things feel really, really bleak sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of what Taya Miles is saying, part of what uh, there's a climate essayist named Mary Anais Heglar, part of what she says is that you can look to the experiences of Black women and black people more generally in this country and realize that that this is not the end that things have been bleak before that there is a way toward resilience that things are bleak again but we have to continue to survive you don't just give up you keep going and that is what Ruth does in the story that is what Ashley does in the story that is what Rose does in this story and you know that that i think is is for me part of why I've gone back to this book several times, part of why I care about it, part of why I care about history more largely. Uh, and Ty Miles, in, I believe in February of this year, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times where she talks about this. She talks about this idea that uh, that we need to have hope. I think if it's okay, I'll read just a little bit from the end of her op-ed. She says, despite our anxieties, we are not standing on the precipice at the end of America or the end of the world. Instead, we face change of a nature and magnitude that we may not fully perceive, but which history gives us a way to confront. It is not a viable strategy to close our minds against the threat by believing all is already lost. So let us meet the change ahead by joining together in small acts small acts of mutual humanity, embracing the strategy of gritty hope that Black culture and history make manifest. Gritty hope. Yeah. See, she did it again with the language. She's not glossy. Nope. 
but she's exactly right. It's the exact truth. Gritty hope. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Can you tell my listeners what you're reading these days? Yeah. So I, uh, for for fun, I mean, it's all fun, but <laughs> sort of not for podcast reading. Um, the current cozy mystery series that I am reading is the Countess of Harley mysteries. Uh, so this is yet another, like, I think it's Victorian Britain, but Regency Victorian, you know, it all, it all goes together in the way that they have to like have chaperones and, uh, and there's a, a formula to these kinds of books where, you know, it it's like the, the wealthy widow <laughs> and she meets somebody who happens to this guy who like solves mysteries and then they end up working together <laughs> against themselves. I wonder themselves. what's going to happen. <laughs> I wonder, but, um, it's delightful, just like all of the other series like that. Uh, it's by Diane Freeman. Uh, so I'm reading that. Uh, I'm at any given time reading a lot of history. Uh, so right now, uh, I'm reading a lot of Asian American history because I am doing this upcoming series uh, on Asian American and Pacific Islander History Month. Uh, so I am reading a book about Patsy Mink, who was the first woman of color in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, and this book is written, co-written by a historian and Patsy Mink's daughter. Uh, so it's an incredible read. It, it sort of weaves together this, like these uh, anecdotes from the daughter and then, you know, sort of a traditional biography from the historian. Uh, so that's really fun. Where, what state was she? Uh, Hawaii. Oh, way to go, Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so that's a, a really fun read. Uh, and then I'm doing a whole series in June on queer history. Uh, and so I'm getting ready to read some books uh, for that. Uh, one is about uh, queer women in the suffrage movement. So there's been a lot of work recently looking at uh, sort of the suffrage movement more widely and not just sort of the middle-class white women who are, are sort of have gotten all of the attention, but looking at uh, women of color in the suffrage movement uh, and now bringing in the, the story of queer women in the suffrage movement. The author is Wendy Rouse. It's called Public Faces, Secret Lives, A Queer History of the Women's Suffrage Movement. Mm. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, but I would also strongly recommend a book by Kathleen Cahill came out in uh, fall of 2020. It's called Recasting the Vote, How Women of Color Transformed the Suffrage Movement. Uh, and it's an incredibly good read. It's an academic press book, but it's a, a very good, quick read. Uh, and it talks about a number of different women uh, in that movement. So there's uh, some Native American women, some Black women, uh, some Hispanic women, uh, and some Asian women uh, who are are in that mix and are it it really sort of problematizes uh, what happens, especially toward the end of the the suffrage movement. So women get the vote, um, but a lot of women of color really don't get the vote mm -hmm. uh, and and are going back to the suffrage movement, being like, "Okay, we helped you. Now can you help us?" and and are just sort of shut out. And so that that's a really fascinating read. Will you tell my listeners where they can find you and your work? Yeah, so uh, I do have a website. I don't update it often, but you can find links to things. So it's uh, kellytheresepollock.com. 
but you can find me. I'm all over Twitter, especially uh, Instagram, TikTok a little bit, but mostly Twitter uh, at Feminist Kelly. <laughs> That's sort of where my politics nice. on my sleeve uh, <laughs> on Twitter. And uh, Unsung History is also on all the socials. Uh, it's usually at unsung underscore underscore history. <laughs> it was hard to find a, a, a username that wasn't taken already. Okay. Uh, so new episodes of Unsung History come out every Monday, uh, every single Monday, even when there's holidays. <laughs> wow. I don't take breaks. Uh, July 4th is a Monday this year, and I will be doing an episode about July 4th, uh, cool. the history of July 4th. Uh, that's also my birthday, so I'm looking forward to that one. And uh, I also do a, a live show called Uncorked History, uh, which is a little more irreverent. Uh, so it's on Thursday evenings. And, you know, we, we get together with some historians. Uh, my co-host is a pirate historian, so she's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jamie and we, That's a real we get together. Thing. She yes, she's written several books on pirates. <laughs> okay, I'm calling her next. That is she's amazing. pretty incredible. Uh, so we talk to other historians. We drink. Uh, sometimes we talk about the history of alcohol. Sometimes we just sort of happen to be drinking while we're we're talking. <laughs> um, but it's a little more of like a, a talk show kind of thing. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And that you can find uh, uncorkedhistory.com. Uh, it's a webinar, so you can either join the webinar live or just watch it on YouTube later. And you do that every Thursday? Uh, not every Thursday, but a lot of Thursdays. So there's a, a schedule on the website. Got it. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. Well, I want to thank you. This conversation has just been so fulfilling and wonderful. And I want to thank you for joining me. And I hope you will come back Anytime you have a book you want to share, because this has just been great. <laughs> I might read a few books here and there. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you've got a pretty wide and deep river of books to talk to me about. <laughs> yes, my my husband, when I told him I was coming on this show, was like, you were able to name a favorite? Because <laughs> that, that's it's not a, always an easy thing for me. Bookworms, I can't wait to hear if you've read this book and what you thought of it. What other Black historians do you recommend I read? Tell me where I should go next over on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. Remember, you can find links to all the books we discussed in the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. And if you have a book you want to tell me about, click on the Be a Guest button on my website or Instagram bio so we can chat. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.